Hi, my name's Ryan Perry. I'm the pastor at Seneca Baptist Church, and we are so thankful that you're joining us in this online resource. Our prayer for you is that this resource would not replace your active involvement in a local body of Christ, but would rather be supplemental to it. If you are interested in getting further connected to the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church or to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. All right, Luke chapter 24, verse 36. We're going to walk through this passage today. And we're going to finish up the book of Luke. Many of you are in disbelief. Uh, I I think I shared not too long ago, we started the book of Luke in September of 2018. Uh, We we took some commercial breaks and did some topical stuff and and series through the book of Luke. But uh, it's here. It's happening. Uh, Nothing's impossible with God. Amen. All right. So we're in verse 36. As they were talking about these things. What in the world are the these things? So let me just fill you in, okay? Third day since Jesus died on the cross. This is Sunday now. Um, Sunday is, is, has happened. It's come. They went to the tomb that morning to prepare uh, Jesus' body for a real proper burial, and he wasn't there, and angels were there. And they said, why do you look for the living among the dead? You're looking for the wrong thing in the wrong place. And so the ladies, they run back to the disciples who are gathered up, and they say, you're not going to believe it, he's not there. Some disciples run to the tomb. They run to the tomb, and they find that it's just as the ladies had thought or said. And so what we see then in verse 13 is two of them, two of the disciples. We're not exactly sure who they are. Cleopas, we know one of them, but Cleopas and, and somebody are walking down the road on the way to, the, on the way to Emmaus, seven miles walk, and Jesus kind of catches up with them. He says, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they basically say to him, where have you been living? What planet are you from? Do you not know what's going on in our little town? Have you not been a part of all these things? And he's like, well, what things? And they tell him. Tell him all the things. And they say, we had hoped that this man was the one to redeem Israel. Mm, I guess not. So they finally make it to where they're going in Emmaus. And Jesus acted like he was going to keep walking. And they invite him in. Why don't you come eat with us? Jesus goes in and breaks bread. And he blesses it, and their eyes are opened to see him. And he vanishes. Jesus opens their eyes, gives them eyes to see that day, and he vanishes from their sight. And so those two, Cleopas and whoever, go back seven miles, back to where the disciples are holed up somewhere. They go back to Jerusalem, and they tell the disciples everything that they had seen these things as they were talking about these things. You're not going to believe it. Jesus opened up the Word and he, he went through every passage in the Bible that talked about Him. And it was incredible. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus Himself stood among them 
and said to them, Peace be to you. Now, I just have a thought. If we're sitting in a room and we're talking about Jesus and then the door is locked and the windows are closed and Jesus appears in the room, shalom is not going to be the first thing that happens in my heart, right? I'm going to think the same things that they think. Uh, I might in my brain say a word that I should not say, right? When I see somebody appear in a room, just as he vanished, he appears. He appears among them. And they thought, verse 37, they were startled and frightened, and they thought they saw a spirit. They thought they saw a spirit. Hey, I wonder, they might say, if this is the same spirit that revealed themselves to the the ladies at the tomb. Because they kind of doubted that the ladies had actually seen angels, but they said maybe they saw a vision. Maybe this is the same spirit in the same vision says, they startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why did, why did doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Verse 40, and when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And I want to just come to us. and Last week, the, uh, the stranger on the road to Emmaus, and this week, two separate passages about the resurrection, but they have great similarities. And here are the similarities that I want you to see. First is that they receive a resurrection appearance, both of them. On the road to Emmaus, they meet with Jesus, and here in this room, they see Jesus. Jesus appears to each group. Second thing that's similar is a meal. Because in just a second, what he's going to say is, anybody got anything to eat around here? I've been in the tomb three days. Brother's kind of hungry. So you have anything to eat? There's a meal. And then there's a, a scriptural exposition where Jesus says, let me teach you from the scriptures all the things about me. And so here's what's beautiful. Here's what's outstanding to me in my own mind as I thought about this passage this week. That Can you imagine everything that, that the disciples are going through at this time? All of their hope for three years had been in this man named Jesus. All of their hope. They thought he was the king, the Messiah. They thought that he was the one to redeem Israel. And then their hopes were crushed as Jesus was crucified. As his side was pierced and as he was put in a tomb, can you imagine the despair that exchanged itself in their lives for hope that they once felt? Can you imagine the fear that overwhelmed them in these moments where walking into Jerusalem just a few days before, everybody shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Can you imagine the fear that overwhelmed that sense of excitement? Can you imagine the trouble and despair and frighten, uh, fright that they're, they're feeling in these moments? I, mean, I just can't fathom what they're going through. The depth of what they're going through. And Jesus meets them right where they are. I love that we serve such a gracious God. 
We serve a kind and compassionate and merciful God. And let me tell you, you have doubts, that's okay. The disciples did too. And He'll meet you in your doubts if you're willing. You've got fear? Hey, that's okay. The disciples did too. And He'll meet you in the middle of your fears if you're willing. Is your heart troubled? The disciples were too. And He'll meet you there. If you're willing. I mean, in fact, the Old Testament reveals to us. The psalmist says he's near to the brokenhearted. He comforts the afflicted. He binds up the wounded. Isn't that good? And Jesus here, he comes and he meets them in this room. And he he meets them right in the middle of everything that they're experiencing. And just a couple weekends ago, on Easter weekend, we talked about how there was this empty tomb. Why was there an empty tomb? It wasn't so Jesus could get out. I mean, obviously, he just disappeared from their sight on the road to Emmaus. And then he appeared to them in the middle of a room. He didn't need for the rock to be moved, the stone to be rolled away so that he could get out. He wasn't on the inside going, help! Right? The tomb is open so that we can look in. The tomb is opened as a mercy to us, as a grace to us, as a gift, so that doubting Thomas might be able to look inside the empty tomb and say, he ain't there. And today, Jesus meets these guys. I mean, just look at the words. They were startled, frightened. They thought they'd seen a ghost, a spirit. Why are you troubled? Why did doubts arise in your heart? And in the middle of all those things, Jesus shows up. Why? Why did Jesus show up? To overwhelm all of their emotions, all of their experiences with something far more real than what they're going through. Jesus gives them a glimpse. He gives them a glimpse at the resurrected king. He says, you see? I mean, touch me. See me. Look. Hear my hands. Hear my feet. Here's my side. Thomas. John records in his gospel how Thomas said, I'm not going to believe unless I stick my hand, my fingers in the holes in his hands and I stick my hand in his side. Jesus shows up in the room and says, Thomas, if that's what it's going to take, brother, I love you enough. I'm going to be gracious to you enough to let you stick your fingers in the holes in my hands. My nail-scarred hands are yours for the taking. My my spear-pierced side is open to you if that's what it's going to take for you. I'm going to meet you right where you are. Bring me your doubts and then doubt your doubts. Let your doubts be overwhelmed. And he says, see, touch, I'm right here. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones, does it? Speaking of, give me a piece of fish. I'm hungry. Spirits don't do that, do they? He gives them all the proof that they need right there in that moment. And I'm just thankful that no matter what you're going through, no matter what difficulty you have, no matter what grief is overwhelming you, no matter what trouble is befalling you, no matter what's going on in your life, Jesus is not far from you. He will meet you there. What good, glorious news. What's so startling, outstanding, beautiful to me is that it says they thought that they saw a spirit. Jesus knew their thoughts. 
He knew their thoughts. And he offered himself to his disciples. And in an encounter with the risen Christ, I want you to see what, what happens. They, had, they were startled, they were frightened, and he says, Shalom. Now, peace, peace to you, peace be to you. Now, if you have ever done a study on the word Shalom, Shalom is not just the idea of having no conflict in your life. That's not what peace means in the Old Testament. Is you are having a season where there's nothing going wrong and you have no conflict, but shalom is something far more beautiful and far deeper than just uh, an absence of conflict or an absence of strife. Shalom is this idea of inner wholeness, of peace in the middle of a storm, that no matter what the world throws at you, there is a rock that you're attached to, and that rock will not be moved. Shalom, peace be to you. I know you're troubled. I know you're afraid. I know you're startled. But let me tell you what I can offer you in the middle of your troubles. I can offer you a shalom that is not of this world. Peace I leave with you, Jesus says. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you. I give you a peace that passes understanding. I give you a peace that calms the storm. Because I'm the captain of the ship. And he says, peace, shalom. And what happens? And a, an encounter with the risen Jesus gives them shalom instead of trouble or anxiety. It gives them belief instead of doubt. Now, I want you to look. I want you to look. He says, touch me. Belief. Let me give you evidence. Now, here's what's beautiful. Why is it necessary to have uh, an empty tomb and the appearances of Jesus? We talked about this a few weeks ago, but just to remind you real fast, if you just had an empty tomb, you would have said, well, the disciples stole him. Uh, it's just a big hoax. It's just a big hoax. It's a plot. It's a scheme. The disciples took him away. And lots of skeptics will say that about the resurrection. The resurrection can't be true because it's just a hoax. Except, and it could be a hoax, if he had not appeared to 500 or so people. At different times, in different places, in different ways. He appeared to them. And now let me tell you, if it was just the appearance, well, you could say maybe it was a ghost. Maybe it's a spirit. Maybe they're all hallucinating. They all ate really bad fish. You'd say, well, you could, you could write that off. But when you have the empty tomb and the appearances of a resurrected Christ, what you have is evidence for the resurrection that cannot be disproven. Now, you, you might choose to disagree with it. You might choose to disbelieve it, but you're doing so in despite or in the face of great evidence. And I quoted to you a guy named Josephus, first century historian, Jewish historian, who wrote that Jesus, whom they thought was the Messiah, appeared to his disciples three days after he died. And he said, maybe he is the Messiah. Jewish historian, writing of Jesus in the first century. Maybe he is. 
See, even historians of the day note that Jesus appeared to many. And as the Bible's written, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, many of those witnesses are still alive. Go ask them. They saw him. They touched him. Go find Thomas. You still doubt? Go find Thomas. Ask him. What we have in the resurrection is this body of proof that turns doubt to belief. When you come in contact, when you encounter the resurrected Jesus, shalom will overwhelm your life, even despite what you're going through. Belief will fill your doubt and cast it out. And joy will come in times of despair. Look at verse 41. And while they still disbelieved for joy... Let me. This is this is a different disbelief. Have you ever? Have you ever? Has something ever so great happened to you in your life that you couldn't believe it, even though you knew it was true? I can't believe this is happening to me. This is the best news ever. This is amazing. I just can't wrap my mind around it. They went from I can't wrap my mind around that Jesus is dead to I can't wrap my mind around the fact that Jesus is alive. They disbelieved for joy. It wasn't for for a lack of evidence. It, it wasn't a doubt any longer. It was a disbelief for joy. Can you, can you just see the transformation that happened with the twelve, or however many are in that room, that instead of despair, they are now filled with an overwhelming joy? Joy is not circumstantial. See, a lot of us were on the pursuit of happiness. There's even a movie about the pursuit of happiness. And let me tell you, if you're pursuing happiness, happiness is fleeting. Happiness is a moving target. What will make you happy today will not make you happy tomorrow. But if you're searching for joy, there is a joy to be found that is an everlasting joy. And it comes from being in the presence of God. You seek happiness and you will always be left wanting. You seek joy and Jesus will reveal himself to you. A, an encounter with the resurrected King Jesus will leave you with joy in your heart that the world cannot steal away from you. And we see it right here. And he says, verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. In this passage, Jesus says in, in, in so many words, you can't name a part of the scriptures, no section of the scriptures, whether it's the Psalms or the prophets or the history uh, whatever it is, you can't find a single place in the Bible, a single body of literature inside the Scriptures that don't talk about me, that don't point forward to me. And Jesus is saying, everything written about me, everything written about me, had to be fulfilled. That word, it says, everything written about me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That word for must is, it is necessary. It's necessary for it to be fulfilled. It had to come about. And as, as tough as this has been for you, I want you to understand it's been far tougher for me. But as much joy as it's bringing you now, it brings me far greater joy to redeem the world through my sacrifice. That's why it says in Hebrews chapter 12, I think it is, verse 2, he says, it says, um, to run the race with endurance is set before us, 
fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, despised the cross, bore the shame. The joy set before him. The cross was a joy to our Savior. And when we see that it was joy for Jesus to look in front of him and to redeem us, oh man, what joy we can find in him. He points to all of these pieces of Scripture, and then it says it must be fulfilled. It's necessary that they were fulfilled. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the Scripture. He opened their minds to understand the Scripture. I said it last week, I'll say it again. Can you imagine the beauty of that Bible study? Like, that's one. Jesus, come back, let me see it. I wonder if in heaven that I might be able to sit down with Jesus one day and go, hey, what would you say to the guys on the road to Emmaus? I want to hear it. I don't know if that's ever going to happen or not. I don't think it's going to matter when I get there. He opened their minds. I want you to understand that if you understand, if you see, if you're able to perceive that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that He is the one who fulfilled all of the prophets and the Psalms and the Scriptures, if you see that, You just need to take a praise break for a minute and say, thank you, God, that you have opened my mind in such a way that I can see because I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. There was a day that I didn't see. From 12 years old on, I've been going to church, but it wasn't until 16 years old that I remember hearing the gospel of Jesus. There was a point in time in my life that I went to church, I was around the gospel, but I don't think I heard the gospel. And it wasn't because the preacher wasn't preaching it or the youth pastor wasn't sharing it, but I had a mind that was closed off and ears that were, that were, were, were deaf and eyes that could not see. And if you can see today that Jesus is the resurrected King, He is the suffering servant, He is the sinner's Savior, then you need to just stop and go, thank you God that I can see now. And then you need to pray. Because that means that it doesn't matter how good of an evangelist or a witness or a gospel sharer you are, your gospel sharing is never so good that deaf ears can hear it and blind eyes can see it and closed minds can comprehend it. it you, the, the gospel always must go in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we see that Jesus shows up he's present with them in the very room where they are and then he shows that i've been present with you this whole time let me open the word let me show you my presence in the word let me tell you i wish sometimes i wish that we had jesus right here in us how, how different would our worship service be if jesus were sitting on the front row if somewhere around the welcome, the back doors kind of opened up and a light strung, strung in and, and out down the aisle walks Jesus. Sorry, guys. He sits down on the front row. You know we would never have a worship service like that. Wouldn't that be incredible? But isn't that true already? Isn't it true that when we gather here for worship that he's here with us? Aren't we the church of the living God? 
Isn't it isn't that what makes us distinct from all the other religions or nations? Isn't it that Jesus is among us wherever we are when we gather that he's here, he's present? How much should this idea that Jesus was present with them in the room and then he showed his presence in the word, how much should that change our lives that he's here with us? And then we worship sometimes so pointlessly, so impassionately. And Jesus is among, I don't like that song. It ain't about you, brother, sister. It's about Jesus. If you can't worship to a song that you don't know, you're not going to like heaven because there we sing a new one. We ain't going to get to heaven and say, when we all get to... Wait, wait, wait. That's not a... We're there. When the roll... Oh, it's already happened. You're not singing the old songs that you've always sung. He gives us a new song that we've never sung before. He gives you a new name. Now, I'm poking... I'm poking the bear a little bit because we need to be poked sometimes. Worship is not about us. Jesus is with us. He is present with us. And then when we open the Word, we're opening the Word not to get our daily Bible reading, not to get fed, but we're here to see and savor Jesus Christ, whether we're in the book of Exodus or the book of Luke. Genesis or Revelation, you cut the Bible anywhere and it bleeds the blood of Christ, there is the scarlet thread of redemption that is woven all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And when we open the Bible, we look and behold Christ. And that's why 2 Corinthians, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. He's dropped the scales from our eyes. The veil's gone. And we see. He's there with them. He's there in, in physical form, his tangible presence, and he's there with them. He shows himself in the word. Now, let me tell you, you can't just have one without the other. Because if it was just his presence physically, it would be experiential, it'd be relativism. This is what worship looks like for me. This is how I worship the Lord. This is, oh, I'm just after the feeling. I'm after the experience. I'm after the emotion. It can't just be his physical presence in worship. Because that would lead to a, a subjectivity where I'm always looking for the next experience. And it would lead to an immaturity because I'm never growing in the words of faith. And it would lead to despair. Because sometimes I don't feel Jesus even though I know he's among me. Amen? And so if I'm looking for the experience, I'm always looking for his presence, I'm going to be let down. That's not going to last. And I'm always going to be looking for the next best way to experience Jesus. And if it's just his word, and then, then Christianity and worship is a, a goal of scripture memorization... Fact finding. I got to get my Bible reading today so I can check that off my list. And that leads me to pride. I mean, that's what the Bible says. Paul says it in one of the Corinthians. He says, Knowledge puffs up. So if it's just about the Word, that's not going to be very much help to me either. But we see that we're to worship Jesus in spirit and in truth. 
We worship Him in His very presence, that He is here with us, and we worship Him in the truth of His Word revealed to us as Jesus shows Himself to us every day as we see and savor Jesus through His Word. He reve- Jesus is revealing Himself to them as He desires to reveal Himself to us in a divine encounter with His presence and in His divine Word. And the goal of the Word is to know Him. It's to know Him. And that's the goal of life. What's happiness? No, it's not. It's to know Him. It's not even joy. It's not even righteousness. It's not even those things. It's to know Him. Jesus says in the high priestly prayer in John 17, 3, He says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true living God and the one that you have sent. You want to know what eternal life is? It doesn't start when we die. It starts the moment that we receive the gift of salvation deep into our souls and we have a divine encounter with a suffering Savior and a risen King. That's when eternal life happens. It can happen in your bedroom. It can happen at the altar. It can happen wherever you are. But that's when eternal life happens because the goal of the gospel is not forgiveness of sins. The goal of the gospel is not heaven. The goal of the gospel is that I get to know him. Jesus died to bring me to God. I mean, the Bible reveals from the beginning all the way through the Old Testament that man sinned and is separated from him, and the only thing that can bring people near is the death of the Son. Good gravy. I gotta, I, y'all got to listen faster. 46, and he said to them, thus is it is written that the Christ should suffer and that on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus gives them the mission of God. The mission of God is summarized in three infinitives, uh, in three verbs, kind of. It's Christ must suffer, that he, he, to suffer, he's got to suffer, that Christ is going to rise from the dead, and that, that Christ must be proclaimed or preached. He centers the mission on Christ. It should be proclaimed in his name. Two of those have already been accomplished Christ suffered, Christ rose. One is to be fulfilled. He gives them the mission. And I want you to see some elements of the mission as I blow through some of these things real fast. Let's not miss them. Number one, the disciples are called to preach. You want to know what the mission is? If you're a disciple, you've been called to proclaim Jesus, to preach Jesus. Or as our mission statement says, to declare Jesus. You've been called to declare Jesus. Second, the second thing that I want you to see in this passage is what's our message? The message is a message of repentance. Repentance. You can't have salvation if you don't have repentance. Repentance and salvation go hand in hand. It's not simple belief, but it's repentance and faith. They go hand in hand. Repentance. Turn from sin to Jesus. We've made repentance. Well, just know that you've done a bad thing. 
No, the Bible says that repentance is a turning from that direction which is wrong and sinful and is leading me on the road to hell, that I am living in such a way that I am getting what I deserve when I go to hell. God sends no one to hell. My sin sends me to hell. So i got to understand that I'm on the road with the bridge out, and if I don't watch out and turn around, then I'm going to walk myself right into the abyss. So repentance is turning from sin and turning to Christ as the only hope of salvation. It's the message is a call to repentance. The offer is forgiveness. Verse 47, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. Forgiveness. Why do you need forgiveness? Because we have sinned against a holy God. Ryan, not me. I'm a pretty good guy. And if you outweigh my, my good deeds and my bad deeds, I'm doing pretty well. That's not how God's economy works. If you sin against a holy God once, you can never live in such a righteous manner that undoes that one sin. That one sin separates us from God. That one sin deserves for us a condemnation, that, that a wrath that cannot be undone with a life full of moral living. We deserve a death, and the only thing that can satisfy the wrath of God is the forgiveness of God. I, he alone can forgive me. I, he alone is the one that I need forgiveness from. You can't forgive me on behalf of God. God is the one I've sinned against, and He is the one that I need his forgiveness and the way that he has mustered his forgiveness is not because he's a God of love or kind, which he is a God of love and he is kind, but the way that God forgives is at a, a cost to himself. He forgives your sin by laying out perfect justice on the Son of God, your consequence on Jesus, your death attributed to him. It was put in his bank account. All of the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin was attributed and accounted to Him so that in His death and resurrection, His righteousness and forgiveness might be attributed to us. The world doesn't need to become churchgoers. The world needs to be saved. And there's that, the authority for that forgiveness is only in Jesus' name. Look at it. Verse 47, that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name. That brings me to Acts chapter 4, verse 12. It says, there is salvation in no other name. There is no other name uh, given under heaven by which men can be saved. Jesus says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The way is narrow, but it, it is open for all. It's, it comes only in Jesus' name. The message is for the nations. He says, proclaim it in His name to all nations. The message of forgiveness is not just for you. Uh, the, the disciples didn't get it. They didn't get it fully. You open the book of Acts, part two of the book of Luke. You open the book of Acts, and they're preaching the gospel in Jerusalem and, and to Jews. And then they leave Jerusalem, and they, then they go looking for Jews in all of the other places. And finally, God reveals to Peter that the salvation does not just belong to Jews. 
Now, that's really good news because probably none of us are Jewish in here. That means it's for you. You are the nations in this passage. That means for the ones who we have looked down on, that's for the ones that don't look like us, worship like us, think like us, weren't raised like us, the gospel is for them. They need forgiveness and salvation just like any, and the only way for them to be saved is the same way that you're saved. By grace, through faith in Jesus. It's for the nations, for all nations. The book of Revelation reveals that in heaven every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. There will be people surrounding the throne from every tribe and nation and people and language. Every, 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 every. I want to be a part of every. And then the last thing I want you to see is that the power for all of that does not reside in you. Do you know how impossible of a mission that would be if it depended on you? But aren't you glad that you being witnesses, you preaching the gospel, you sharing that with all of the nations, you preaching a hard message in a hard place, you doing all of those things, the power does not come from you. You're not charismatic enough. You're not well-versed enough in Scripture. You're not wise enough to save a single person. You cannot change a heart. You cannot open somebody's eyes. You cannot drop the plugs from their ears or soften a hardened heart. You can't do it. But God sent His Spirit. Verse 49, Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. That is the promise of the Holy Spirit as given to us in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive my power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Church, six years ago today was my first day at Seneca Baptist. I stood before you six years ago today, and I said, Church, if we don't do something, if we don't do something to take the gospel of Jesus to people that are far from him, if we don't, if we're not willing to do that, we will close our doors in a period of five to ten years. It's time. It's time for us to take the message of the gospel to people that need it most. And, and if we don't take the message of the gospel to people who need it most, we should close our doors. Because in that moment, we have ceased to be a church that exists for the glory of God. I don't care what it takes. I don't care what it takes. The gospel ends, verse 50. He led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Do you know what it means to be a Christian? What it means to be a Christian could be summed up in that one verse, that forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever, you live under the blessing of God. Not because you're awesome, but because Jesus died and rose for you. He took your sin, shame, and punishment, condemnation, separation, so that you might forever and ever and ever live as a person, a child of God's blessing.
And then it, it's blessing and worship. Verse 51, while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshiped him. You want to know the only appropriate response to all of the gospel? It's right there. Worship. And that does not mean singing a song. That is a heart tuned to seeing him and savoring him in all that we do. To lifting him up, to being witnesses. That is, we worship him not just through singing, but through praying through opening of Scripture. When we leave this place, we are worshiping people, going out of this place to worship Him in public as we are witnesses of all that He said, of all that He's done, and of repentance and forgiveness. We are worshiping people. Worship is a lifestyle. And if you think every Sunday morning that Christopher exists to tune you up to worship, that's not why he exists. He exists to lead us to worship. By the time you get here, you should have been preparing all week long to worship your risen Savior. So if you come, I'm gonna, if you come and you go, that wasn't worshipful, that ain't on Christopher. That's on you and me. Because that means I haven't done my homework. I haven't been a worshiping people throughout the week. And then it kind of ends in a weird way. They worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. What happened? What's next? Seems kind of like an open ending, right? It's because it is. Luke intends it that way. It's a two-part gospel. The second part comes in the book of Acts. In other words, this is not the end of the story. This is the beginning of the story. This is the beginning of all that Christ has done. This is the beginning of the kingdom coming to earth. This is the beginning of God's redemption plan. This is the beginning. And we get to live as a part of God's continuation of redemption in the world. I'm excited about that. That God could have left all of these original apostles here forever... They could have been the missionary force, but instead, he chose Balaam's donkey like you and me. I'm going to use those guys. You want to know why? Because if I use those guys, I'm going to get glory. I'm going to get worshipped. What Christ accomplished through his gospel is now being applied to the hearer as we preach and as we proclaim Jesus among the nations. There are great days ahead for Seneca Baptist Church. If we join him on mission. That does not mean that we are missions givers. And that we are missions minded but it means when we get off our duffs and we go and we share the gospel with people. Would you, uh, would you stand with me? Christopher and Miss Margaret are going to come and lead us. We're going to respond to the Lord.
and um, there's, there are different groups of people. There, there are some of us who know the gospel. We've internalized the gospel. We've trusted in Jesus, but we're not living out his calling on our lives, which is not to do witnessing, but to be witnesses. We live as martyrs every day. Interesting that it uses that word, of all words, to be witnesses. It means to die daily for the cause of Christ. Die to self and even be willing to die for Him. We're not, some of us in this room, we're Christians, but we're not living as witnesses. Others in this room, your eyes have been closed, your ears have been plugged, your hearts are hard, your mind has not been able to comprehend, but today you see. And if that's you, trust Jesus today. Let's pray. And you can move if you want to move to the altar and these stairs around the, the stage area. You can come and pray, kneel and pray. Ask for forgiveness. Confess your sin. Recommit your life to the mission of God. You can do that today. Let's pray. Father, forgive me for complacency and apathy, knowing what I should do, but oftentimes not doing what I know I should do. Forgive me for making life about me, making life about my comfort, making life about my pleasure, making life about my family. None of those are evil things, but when they replace, displace your mission and your purpose for my life, Father, they become sinful. So forgive me for my sin, my acts of omission. Father, Thank you for giving us eyes to see you and ears to hear you and hearts to comprehend all of the glorious things that Jesus has done for us. Help us to continue to see and savor him, to fall more in love with him to such a degree that we flock out of the church to see people come to Christ. If there's anybody in this room, Father, that needs Jesus this morning, would you draw them to Jesus today and save them by your grace. May they, may we, may they have a divine encounter with the risen King. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing. And if you